You're listening to the podcast of East River Park Christian Church. If you'd like to find out more information about the church or donate to this ministry, please visit us at eastriverpark.church. We pray that this is an encouragement to you as you grow in Christ through the local church. About two weeks ago, me and the boys went for a bike ride on the Tweetsy Trail, and uh, my daughter didn't join us because she recently crashed a four-wheeler, and she's kind of been banned from adventurous things. And so uh, we loaded up the car, headed toward the parking lot over at Lions Field. It was a perfect day outside. It wasn't too hot, just a little bit of a breeze, and slowly but surely we made our way up the, the path. We we pedaled past the ball fields, we crossed the wooden bridge, we stopped by the quarry just to grab some water and take pictures. And as we're going up the path uh, towards the old uh, Milligan train depot, Judah looks at me and says, wow, daddy, it's really pretty out here. It's a very nice day. And I know that sounds like something a perfect uh, little kid would say in a 1950s TV show, but I promise you he's not perfect, and um, I promise you that that's true. It's true. He's right. We're, we're, we're really blessed to live in a beautiful area, rolling hills and mountains, rivers and lakes. People from around the world travel here just to hike the trails. People from around the country come here to fish the waters. And sometimes, and I would say maybe not often enough, we just need to step back and observe the grandeur and beauty of East Tennessee. And I'm going to make the case this morning that, that God designed us this way. That God designed us to be overwhelmed with, uh, with the power and the might of His, His creation. That in our awe of, of what God has done, we might truly be in awe of Him. Paul Tripp, he, he put it like this. He says, every awesome thing in creation is designed to point you to the one who is alone worthy of capturing and controlling the awe of your searching and hungry heart. This is a message for you and I to quit looking at ourselves. And this is a message for you and I to kill the self-exalting desire within us. This is a message for you and I to see the power and the might and the awesomeness and the glory of the Lord. This is a Uh, This is a message that we might see the beauty of creation and it shatter our selfishness and drive us to the cross. That we might see the truth of the word and and it it would just leave us speechless as we gaze at the glory of, of Christ. So this is a message about our majestic God. Uh, You have a Bible, I'll be in Psalm 8. If you have a digital Bible, I'll, I'll go through that ESV translation. If you have nothing this morning, the bulletin uh, has it all there for you. So let it's, let, let's pray before we read uh, something that is not something we do out of routine, but an important aspect before we study the Word, that we need to pray and depend on the Spirit. So let's pray, and then we'll walk through the text together. Father, we uh, come before you in my prayer. My prayer this morning has just been for us to quit 
thinking about ourselves all the time. I struggle for every person in this room. I struggle for every person that listens to this message. God, we're just consumed with us. How we think, how we feel, what we've got going on. Even, even trying to see you through how we see things. God, forgive us for being so incredibly selfish. If the God of uni- the universe would even, even care, would even look upon us, as we'll study in the text. God, I pray against the selfishness in our culture and in our own hearts and minds this morning that we might be able to focus on what you would have to teach us in Psalm 8. God, give us understanding in the Spirit, and we pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. So Psalm 8, it says this, To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And you have set your glory above the heavens, and out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. And so when I when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what I mean, what is man that you are even mindful of him? And the son of man that you even care for him. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly things and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So the very obvious question that we should answer from the text is, I mean, what is so majestic about our God? I mean, when the Bible speaks about God's majesty, it is referring to his greatness or more specifically, his mighty rule over salvation and creation, his mighty rule over the heavens and the earth. It is his glory. It's his attribute. So what we're really doing this morning is learning about really the godness of God, who God is, how amazing our God is, how awesome our God is. I was telling someone recently um, about a concert that Corey and I are going to go see next month. It's a bluegrass duo called uh, The Local Honeys. And um, I was telling them about this uh, group, and their first response about hearing this news was really not mutual excitement, but who is that? And uh, you might be thinking the, the same thing, never heard of them. So I tried to explain, well, yeah, like one plays the banjo and the other plays guitar and the fiddle. And Linda Jean, she's from my hometown in in Kentucky, and they put out some new music, and they got a new album coming out uh, in July. And I I just love being able to share uh, music with people that that have not heard it. I want them uh, to know it and listen to it and see how great it is. And that's what David is doing for us in chapter 8. He's playing a song to describe and show us the majesty of God. He wants us to know him. He wants us to see the might and the power of God. He wants us to know what is so majestic about our God because the more you know about God, the more you worship God. 
I mean, if, if you really, if you really want a sanctuary full of individuals that are just passionately serving and worshiping God, then you need a sanctuary full of individuals that are passionate about knowing who their God is. So what's so majestic about our God? A few things that we see in the text. Here's point one is that he has set his glory above the heavens. He has set his glory above the heavens. When we enter the text, we see another title in in chapter 8. In our study last week, we discovered that those titles are are really superscriptions that are a part of the earliest manuscripts that we have available to us, which means that they are, in fact, uh, God's inspired word. So this is a psalm, as we see in chapter 8, to the choir master according to the Giddeth. And my first question is, well, what's that? What is that? In our our best research, a Gittite is a stringed instrument from the city of Gath, which is uh, one of the major cities of the Philistines, which is also where that giant named Goliath, whom David killed, which is why David has his hands on this instrument. In the Targum, it's this ancient Jewish interpretation of the Old Testament, those documents referred to the word Giddeth by saying, on the harp which David brought from Gath. So the Giddeth is is a stringed instrument from Gath. It's actually the only stringed instrument mentioned in the entire book of Psalms. So it's mentioned here in chapter 8, here in chapter 81, and then in chapter 84. That is our context walking into chapter 8. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, the Psalm of David, verse 1 says, O Lord, our Lord. Let's stop. Oh, it didn't get very far. Last week I asked you if the Lord was your righteousness. Um, this week I'm going to ask you the important question. Is the Lord your king? Because those are two different Hebrew words in Verses 1, it can read as such, O Yahweh, our King. So what's the difference between an apathetic Christian and a real follower of Christ? Well, a real follower of Christ understands that Jesus is their King. That He's not just their Savior and He's not just their friend. He is their King. That He calls the shots and that they bow to His will and not their own. So you are not saved. You're not saved if Jesus is your Savior, but He's not your King. He's both. Verse 1, O Yahweh our King, His name is majestic in all the earth. Psalm 148.13, let them praise the name of the Lord. For His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the earth and heaven. He has Set his glory above the heavens, which the text says. And then in Psalm 113, 4, the Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. So looking at the text, look at the text. The Lord did that. He's like, he's not waiting around wondering if people are going to just start talking about him. And he's not checking his social media feed to see if his name is being made famous among the nations do you even remember, do we remember Philippians 2.9, it says, Therefore God highly exalted him, him being Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Meaning his name is already above 
every name. And, and likewise, His glory is above everything. He has set His glory above the, the heavens. Like, don't you get it? Our worship of God is not some, like some glory-filled piggy bank. As if the bank is empty and God, He's just waiting around for someone to fill it up with our songs of praise. No, friends, the bank is full. And His glory has already flooded the nations. Our worship is just an acknowledgement of that reality. He is majestic because His name is in all of the earth. He is majestic because He has set His glory above the heavens. What's so majestic about our God? Two. He has silenced the enemy with the sound of children. Silence the enemy with the sound of children. Our God is majestic because He silences every enemy. And the radical promise of verse 2 is that the testimony of the enemy being defeated is the praise of babies and infants. And I'll, I'll prove that to you in Matthew 21. Matthew 21, starting in verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to Him, Him being Jesus in the temple, and He healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? So during COVID, uh, our children's ministry uh, volunteers drastically decreased, so we needed to kind of change gears on how we did uh, church. And one of the many changes we made as a church was to have the children in worship with us and then dismiss them after communion like we recently did. Um, and let me tell you, I love it, and we're never going back. I know it can be confusing. It is. It's confusing for visitors to check in their kids before service starts and then they come in here, and then we release them uh, during the service, before the message. But there is something powerful with having children in here making noise. It is a testimony that, what, that God has not done. It's a testimony that God is at work. It's a testimony that God is raising up a new generation that will love and serve Him. A silent church is truly a dying church. So I love that we have infants and children in here making noise. That's David's song. That the praise of children reveal the majesty of God. Which means I can't teach this and not address the obvious. It is of no surprise that the wicked and the evil are trying to silence the voice of infants in the name of healthcare. So being pro-choice is not a political issue, it's a Psalm 8-2 issue. Abortion is evil, it's wrong and murderous. Uh, I, I was on Facebook last week, which is hardly an, ever a fun place to be, and I saw a post about being pro-choice. Uh, it, it really did cause me to pause. It said, The treatment for an ectopic pregnancy is abortion. The treatment for a septic uterus is abortion. This treatment for a miscarriage that your body won't release is abortion. If you can't get those abortions, you die. You die. 
And I read that, and then I, I, I thought of cases of incest and rape and other serious medical issues. And I, we shouldn't take those concerns casually. To have enough empathy to to hear and reflect on people's like real people's struggles. And at the end of the day, but at the end of the day, there were. 629,898 abortions in America in 2019. That's not a conservative news stat. That's from the CDC. And I could not find a recent stat on this topic, so if you have found one, by all means, send it to me. But it is well known that the varied reason, there are varied reasons for abortion, but they have really not changed much in the past several decades. So... Uh, a survey done by Guttmacher Institute in th 2005 says this. The reasons for an abortion most frequently cited were that having a child would interfere with a woman's education, work, or ability to care for children, or for care for dependents, that she could not afford a baby now, and that she did not want to have a single, be a single mother or was having relationship problems. Nearly four in ten women said that they had completed their childbearing and almost one-third were not ready to have a child and fewer than one percent said that their parents or partners' desire for them to have an abortion was the most important reason. Younger women often reported that they were unprepared for the transition to motherhood while older women regularly cited that their responsibility to dependents, meaning the overwhelming amount of abortions in the U.S. has nothing to do with the immediate health of a child or the mother. What should Christians do? I mean, what should we do in light of, of, of verse 2? Well, first I would say we should preach forgiveness to those that have silenced the voice of children. And I will, I will never speak on this without being fully aware that someone listening might have had an abortion and there's true and deep forgiveness in Christ. There is no reason to walk in shame for what Christ has forgiven. There is real forgiveness. And likewise, I would say we should stand up for the voiceless. Christians really should have a backbone enough to see murderous actions of ending an infant's life and not be afraid to call evil evil. It doesn't make, make you the most popular, but I mean, really, y'all, I hope that we've given up that a long time ago. And lastly, I would say we stand for the voice of infants and children outside of the womb. That we are the church to be the first to support single moms and those that are struggling. That as the church to be the first to adopt and foster and care for children. It was not an atheist group that helped us adopt our own children. It was Christians at the Bethany Christian Services in Chicago. It was not an atheist group uh, here in town that launched Isaiah 117 to serve social workers, to be for there for children on the hardest day of their life when they're removed from a house that really should have been a place of safety for them. It was Christians that saw that need and laid down their life for the cause. So God help us. 
Let us defend the cause of the voiceless so we can hear babies and infants sing to the majesty of our great God. What's so majestic about our God? Here's point three. He has made us know true humbleness. Verse three, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, it is important for us to be in creation, to look at creation. And I would say it's no wonder that the more that we have our eyes on technology, and I'm just as guilty as anyone else, the more that we have our eyes on technology, the less we see creation. And the less that we see creation, the less that we see God. The vastness of space, to just find yourself alone at night, surrounded by the stars and the moon, no artificial light, no distractions, and when we gaze at that, we don't think, whew, I am awesome. Like, wow, I've been really crushing it at work. I've been making a lot of money lately. We gaze at the grandeur of creation and think, what a majestic God that we serve. And if we get to that point, then verse 4 is likely the overflow. Like, what is man that you're even mindful of him? That, 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 what is humanity that you even see us and care for us? And our problem is not that we think too lowly of ourselves. It's that we really just don't see ourselves through the lens of this majestic God. And I uh, remember standing in the corner of uh, the church gym in Illinois during my student ministry days. And I was discussing with a parent. Uh, she had twins in our student ministry. And I told this mom, like, my job is not to make your kids feel awesome. My job is to teach your kids about how awesome God is, to see themselves through who God is. I mean, that's true humbleness. True humbleness is not finding the real you. True humbleness is not find, or even just thinking less of yourself, constantly calling yourself some sinful loser. True humbleness is seeing God for God and just being in awe that He even cares about you, that He's even mindful of you. My dad asked me last week, um, if I had uh, a Father's Day sermon planned uh, for this Sunday, and I, I told him, well, we really aren't that kind of church. And so he asked me, well, so you're, you're, you're not going to make dads feel bad on Sunday? And I laughed and said, well, I didn't say that. So um, therefore, dads, looking at verses three through four, your job is not to raise kids that get good grades that go to good schools and get good jobs. I mean, sure, we might want that for our children. We might work for that for our children. But our primary job as fathers is to tremble in the awesome glory of God and then teach your kids to do the same. So parents, like, quit being so shockingly arrogant. Your kids don't need to see how awesome you are because you're not. Your kids need to see the glory of Christ in your life. So parents, take every opportunity in your parenting to point out the majesty of God. Help them see the glory and the awe of God like you do. This is Job 7.17. What is man that you make so much of him? That you set your heart on him. Psalm 144.3. Oh Lord, what is man that you regard him or 
the Son of Man that you even think of him. What is so majestic about our God? Point four, he has crowned us with glory and honor. David, he continues in verse five of the text, yet and yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And you might think, finally, I knew I was awesome. Like, yes, verse five says that I get crowned with glory and honor. I knew I was awesome. Well, let me ruin that for you as well. Um, and show you something I would say that's even better, Hebrews 2. This is long, and I think it gives much clarity to Psalm 8. Hebrews 2, starting in verse 5. For it was not, a, not to angels that God subjected the world to come, which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him whom for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. It was Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. See, God is majestic because he has crowned Christ with all glory and honor. And the powerful reality of Psalm 8.5 is that we are likewise crowned with glory and honor because we are in Christ. Simply because of the grace of God, Christ tasted death for everyone. Because of the grace of God, we are invited into his glory, into his honor in Christ. That's why our God is so majestic. He is a God like no other. I mean, think about it. All the gods of this age demand that you try really, really hard to crown yourself with glory and honor. I mean, even our humanistic or human secularistic culture demands that you try really, really hard to crown yourself with glory and honor. Even the American church that replaces preachers with CEOs and spiritual leaders uh, that are platform builders that just try really, really hard in the name of Jesus, to crown themselves with glory and honor. And the God of the Bible says, nope. That, that's not how this thing works. The God of the Bible says, I will crown you with my glory and my honor because of what I have done, not because of what you've done. He's crowned us with glory and honor in Christ. What is so majestic about our God? Lastly, point five, he has given us dominion over creation. Dominion over creation. God has invited us into the rule and reign over creation. Verse 6, you have given him uh, dominion over the works of your hands. It's the creation account that the Lord designed us to rule and to work and to lead his creation. All the sheep and the oxen, all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the heavens, all the fish of the sea, that we are stewards of creation. That's a pretty big deal if you've learned anything about Psalm 8 so far that creation points to the majesty of god and then god then points back to creation telling man take care of it and rule over it so i, I really don't think it's some woke theology to have a conviction that we should take care of this planet we're designed to take care and to work on this earth and then when this world is destroyed we're designed to care and to work on the new earth, and it 
might, as crazy as it might sound, understanding the majesty of God impacts how you toil in this life. You don't work for the man. You don't work for that boss that um, is hard to get along with or kind of seems like a slave driver. You work for the glory and the majesty of God. You serve God, not man. Christians should be the hardest workers. Christians should work with the most integrity. Why? Well, because our majestic God has ordained us to have dominion over the works of our hands. Colossians 3, starting verse 23. Whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. I finished um, my Bible college degree and thought, I'm never going back to school. Um, and it's not that I hate school. Uh, I, I, I love reading. I love to write. I love to learn. I just, I just love having free time more. And I know if you've been in school, it's just always in the back of your mind. Um, I walked into Bob's office one day. Bob is a pastor of our last church and my mentor, and I, I have no idea how it came up, uh, but he said to me, Jason, I think you need more Bible training. Um, and I don't know if he said that because he was just trying to pour into my life or if I said something dumb, probably both. And I said, well, uh, I'll only go back to school if the church helps pay for it because I still have undergrad debt and I can't get more school debt. So he told me to write a letter to our church elders and um, ask them to help. So that's exactly what I did, and that's exactly what they did. And it took me several years to finish my seminary degree, but I did it. And I graduated with an MDiv in, in pastoral studies and felt great. And I worked hard, and I stayed up countless nights, and I read an insane amount of books and wrote countless papers and did all of this with three kids under three. And I got my MDiv. And the only problem is, no one cares. <laughs> and I mean, most people don't care that I have my master's degree. Most people don't even know that an MDiv is a 90 credit an hour degree program. I did all of this work, and most people don't even care. I'm sure some do, my mom. And, but most don't. And I sometimes wonder if we are chasing this self-glorifying vision of what we wish our life looked like. That we, that we chase a kind of majesty that elevates ourselves, like just the nicer car, just the nicer house, just the better job, just a little more money, just one more degree, just a little bit more better of a vacation. And it's not that ambition is wrong. It's not that, that having nice stuff or making a lot of money is wrong. I'd say it's, it's actually a good thing, a good thing for the church. What's wrong is this never-ending pursuit in our life to swim in the deep end of our own majesty. What's wrong is this pressure. It's a pressure we all feel to make something of ourselves that people around us might praise and worship. What's wrong is the fleshly desire to become these little gods of our own universe and hope and secretly wish that, that someone would just write a psalm about us. And yet, we get to Hebrews 1. Long ago, 
At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Last week, I shared that we could and we should sleep well at night, resting in Christ, that Christ has, has fulfilled the greatest need in our life. But let me also make the case that since it's finished, it means that our pursuit is not our own glory, but for His. I mean, that's my question as we close. I certainly hope that the text, not myself, but the text has convinced us about what is so majestic about our God. But now I wonder uh, if we are pursuing a kind of glory that's not ours to begin with. If, if God finished it, He died the death that we deserve. He conquered death forever. If He finished it, if He is the majesty on high, if His name is majesty, then our only response is to quit this never-ending pursuit of self-glorification, and then submit our lives to Psalm 8. The Lord is majestic in all the earth. That's a very simple summary point as we end. The Lord is majestic in all the earth. O Yahweh, our King. If you have any questions about Psalm 8, or we just want someone to pray over you, we'd love to do that, but let's pray and then we'll sing together.